we were talking about, um, you know, about before we die, discovering, like discovering the secret of life, discovering why we were born, if you like. And I'm convinced that's why we are born. I'm convinced that's all that Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't bring stuff that his father had forgotten in creation. God, you see, once you get, once you get that whole deep um, insinuating uh, theology out of your, your mind, it's extraordinary how it has crept into you we're unworthy and mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa, and reparation, and as though we were a really dangerous family, as though we were really dangerous people doing wrong, wrong, wrong. The story being in the theology of nature and grace, which is the name of this beautiful theology as old as the hills, like that nature is always grace. Everything is grace. And grace is not something out there. Grace always has to be fleshed. So everything is, everything is nature and grace together. And when we are, when we are immersed in that way of seeing, like the last books I've been reading, they don't even mention anything about the fall or Adam and Eve. Like some schools, you could be prosecuted for what, what they call teaching creationism, and they and they use Adam and Eve as an example. If you take it, if you take that story historically, it couldn't have happened. So anyway. Um, I'm just trying to say, like, if you said about, uh, about seeding, as Bill said, about seeding your soul with the possibility of this harvest of, of the mystery and, and letting it into yourself and the children and everybody you get in touch with, because this isn't something you teach, really. It's something you catch off people, and people catch off you. This way of seeing, this way of being, uh, our lives change. That's what we were talking about this morning, and our understanding of sacraments, for instance, like baptism, that exorcism part of... I remember one time in the 60s, um, baptising a small baby of a lovely young couple, and part of the exorcism is where you spit, you do kind of a spit on the child and say, get out of this child with our own clean spirit. And I looked up, and the two of them were looking at me, horrified. Horrified. I remember that film, Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, that horror film. You know, it was, it was like that. It's still there. Get out, whatever the words are, get out of this. Um, and like, where did that come from? Like these, we're, we're beautiful beyond measure. Like I was saying, to be born is to be a child of God. If we were never Christianized or Christianized, <coughs> Like being, becoming a Catholic or a Christian, of course, has a, a huge amount of meaning. But it doesn't make us lovable to God. We're that way just because we're God's children. Whoever we are, wherever we're born, whatever religion we are, it's all God's will. Um, so it does take a lot of, of um, raking the past and looking at it and, and reading, I'm afraid, and studying, I'm afraid, and thinking and talking, I'm afraid, and it's worth it. Um, and this whole, this whole, this whole theme of um, um, the beauty, God, the, the divine beauty of your human heart, and the divine beauty of everything. In two Corinthians, um, the little phrase is, "You are God's love letters, written not with ink, but with the love called the Holy Spirit." Not on tablets of stone, but on the pages 
of your human heart. Isn't that lovely? I'll say it again. I love saying it. <laughs> you, are, you are God's love letters. I think that it's actually letters, but over. You are God's love letters <laughs> written not with ink, but with love. Not on tablets of stone, but on the pages of your heart. Like, we, instead of being told about all this stuff of that negative side of baptism, it has a lovely positive side. You are, you are a priestess. You're a prophetess. You're a princess. Your body is the shrine of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful. So to think of that side of it rather than, you know, you're, you're not. And then, <clears throat> I don't want to get started on it, but like, how could you love? How could anybody love? And England and Ireland got the brunt of it, I think, about that limbo stuff. If a child wasn't baptised officially, it wouldn't see God. It wouldn't go to heaven. And mothers and fathers, and I think of mothers far more than fathers, um, you know, live their lives in despair because oh, for some reason they didn't get water on the baby's head. And they weren't even buried in the Catholic cemetery with all the other cowboy Catholics who would have done immense bad things. And they were buried in some old barren hedge or field or swamp to the west of Ireland or wherever they did in England. Like all of that stays a long time in, in the human heart and memory. How can you love a God who runs his affairs or her affairs that way? So, so I'm just saying today isn't just a day to come and, um, and, uh, and hear a few things or make a few notes. It's calling for a huge and serious transformation of your life under the Holy Spirit and with God's grace. And it will happen to you because you are here. In some way you've, you've answered that call and you're searching and you sense it and you already know it. Like two of you said it just at the coffee break. Yeah, and it's so, it's so lovely for me to hear that because I'm always a bit anxious about these things. You know, all my life one uh, lady said I wanted to hear a priest saying these things because I know them already myself. So like to remember the human heart is the divine heart, the, 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 the divine beauty of your human heart. So, so keep that thing in mind as well again, and let me just, I just found some of those quotations. Um, a short one here is about depth. Keep that in mind, depth. Like the rich life, the Christian life, what Jesus came to, to um, which I didn't finish when I was just saying it, well, I go, what Jesus came wasn't to save us from an angry father. That is terrible. It's not terrible that it was said then. That's what they thought, justice, etc. was. It's that we have kept at it. And probably one of the few people, few groups who still believe it historically, it's impossible. Those of you who know anything about evolution know you can't have perfection in the middle of an evolving situation. Um, um, what was yeah, that Jesus came not to add something that God had forgotten about creation, but to, to, to reveal the meaning of being human. In Jesus' own humanity, to be human was to be divine. That's what he was doing in Revelation. Let us know God has everything in place. 
It's happening as God wants it to be with all the wars and all the, 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 the destruction of the planet. It's still happening somehow the way God wants it to happen. Um, and Jesus came to put the love into it, to remind us and to confirm the love that's in all of that and to put meaning into it. In other words, Jesus came for us to realise our divinity. We didn't know that. We sensed it before 2,000 years ago. But his coming and his being human and his being divine has, has settled it forever. That's why I can say the things I'm saying. They sound a bit extraordinary and a bit pushing it. They're not. This is as old as the Catholic Church and indeed long before it. Remember, creation was the first Bible, was the first incarnation. And I would ask you to really pay a bit of attention to, to the whole story of evolution because evil, creation evolution was so that Jesus would come and then um, would introduce to us something about the meaning and the love. And that's what we're saying. Everything reveals that love. So it's by st stopping, like we did this morning, as, and going that bit deeper. And what Richard Rohr said was, material reality is the hiding place of God. It's the place of revelation. Like, because our thinking up to now uh, in the Roman Catholic Church has been radically dualistic. That means the sacred and the secular are quite different. That means that the holy and the profane are quite different. That means the body, the soul and the body are quite different. Heaven and earth are quite different. We're still at the, like the, the Sunday morning of Mass is, is holier than the Sunday morning in your own home. You know, there's a million examples. The real meaning is that that line down the middle was banished and finished through Jesus' arrival in this planet. He is the one who said, no, that distinction holds no more to be human is to be divine. But no, we're still saying God's love is greater than human love, totally forgetting the meaning of the incarnation, which is that human love is God's love. God having become utterly and completely the same with forgiveness. Like our teaching still is, yes, you might make up and get the forgiveness of whoever you've offended, but you must go and tell the priest as well and get God's forgiveness. See, that is really dangerous stuff, and it's wrong. When we forgive each other, that is divine forgiveness. And how do we know any of them? When Jesus said to Peter, uh, Now, Peter upon this rock, that we were in my church, and said, Oh, sin, you shall forgive. And they had in the ordination system that Jesus was saying that to a human being. That when we as humans forgive each other, of course it's true. We can't do it off our own bat. Um, you know, we need immense divinity within us to be able to forgive, which is such a difficult thing to do. So anyway, like all these examples and pushing them out and, and um, uh, to you, um, just to make sure that you can grasp it or, or remember things because our hearts want to follow in that direction. You know, even like you've said already, which is lovely to hear. So, so he is breaking through that. It's called dualism. It's a big word. You'll come across it if you read a bit about this. Uh, it's that whole separation that Jesus came to, to, to totally um, collapse and put the two together. That to be is to be blessed. To live is to be holy. Like marriage is such a beautiful um, moment of belief in human love. Uh, but we must go deep to see that, he says. What makes a thing sacred or profane is precisely whether we live on the surface of things or not. Ask yourself these questions. Like after, after, after almost every sentence I would say there, I could have been asking you all morning, 
look inwards now for a moment. How does how do you work with that? Would you say you're living on the surface or deep? Would you say you're moving into a more contemplative place in your life, a more still place in your life as you get older, or are you getting more troubled as you get older, worried about this and worried about that and afraid of this and afraid of that? Or have you that supreme trust and stillness that you can somehow keep um, keep awake and alive and positive in spite of anything? Or second half of Jesus, I place all my trust in thee. I can do all things in him who makes me strong. Beautiful prayers. They all echo from my mother. And when I changed from being really frightened of God and running, running for confession every so often, I remember even as a priest, you know, uh, panicking on a, on a morning and, you know, dashing to another priest for absolution before saying Mass. Um, and then whatever happened in midlife or later, I just began to realise and see that I know and believe that I'm utterly loved by God. It sounds presumptuous, it sounds dangerous. I can't do anything about it. I just believe it and totally believe it. Like, believe me, I do. I don't believe in much now, I'm afraid. I've stopped believing as my, as my belief in aspects of the poor old church has diminished, uh, my belief in, in being utterly, utterly loved has increased. Which gives a great freedom, you know, because we worry about getting old, we worry about the diminishment of the senses, like we worry about all kinds of things. If we are of that, a lot of us have a kind of a worrying mind, I have. You know, it can take the joy out of the day, it can take, uh, it can take the, the excitement out of tomorrow, it can drain the past, that old tendency to be negative and um, it's an awful scourge. But I know nothing to deal with it. I mean, there's mindfulness apps and there are good books and there's all kinds of, of things. But to let yourself believe all of this, I think, is a very healing, physically healing, mentally healing, um, as we grow older and face the future. Um, everything is profane if you live on the surface of it. To be asking yourselves these questions, like, what way do you live? Would you say you're a deep person? Do people say that about you? Or are you dashing, doing the things you have to do with the children or with the grandchildren? The false self isn't the best name. But like, do you have your time to reflect and to look into anything? To anything, look into anything, but not in the normal way, just step back a bit and look for the signs of God's beauty. I mean, you, and you could collect a whole bookload every day if you're into that way of looking and seeing and recognising God in all that beauty. It may look ugly, but the deeper seeing will see the beauty in it. So he is saying that um, if everything is sacred, everything is sacred, if you go to the depths of it, even your sin. So the division for the mystic, that's for we're all mystics when we're talking about this kind of stuff anyway, um, is not between sacred and secular things, but between superficial things and things at their depth. Do you understand that? The difference isn't between good and bad or any of those facile distinctions. It's between surface stuff and depth stuff. 
and you need stillness for that. And then um, came across, and I'll just read a small bit of, and this is just from um, some, some um, meditations from last week, about seeing and thinking that everything is based, birthed by, nourished by, filled by love. Even things that have on the face of it nothing whatever to do with God or um, like on the face of it I mean. So now again there's a huge amount of interest being generated about this whole story of, um, of evolution and nature. Like we have made the Roman Catholic Church Catholic so small. The church itself so small, its beliefs are, are really stifling. We made the mass so small. You must be in the state of grace before you receive communion. It's only for Catholics in good standing. We made confession no, real. Like we don't go to confession, we have our sins forgiven. They're already forgiven completely. God loves us unconditionally. We're forgiven a, middle, a million times. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, we are, for, and it's heresy to deny that. We still think we go to confession of our sins forgiven. We go to confession to be assured and to celebrate the fact that we are forgiven. We go to confession to make sure that we are aware of how sinful we are. And we go to confession to be reminded that it only makes sense if we forgive each other. So there are three beautiful reasons for going to confession as often as you like. But being, your sins being forgiven, again, is not one of them. And yet we think that when we think ourselves, that when we say, I absolve you now, that we're actually forgiven. So like, there's a lot, that's what I'm saying, there's a lot to be rethought in where we're at. And now that we're getting no help from anybody much, you don't hear this kind of stuff very often. The, the Vatican is wrangling and is fighting and is scandals. Day after day, Muller or Pell and these Burke, these cardinals fighting against each other. Poor old Pope Francis in the middle of it. Um, nobody has time to help us to, for spiritual nourishment on our way to heaven. There's no time for that. So that's why I believe we have to really, really, really fashion our own images of God. A loving, utterly loving lover God the God of all things, is instead of seeing the danger of the body, the danger of the flesh, the danger of sexuality, the danger of sensuality, these are God's greatest, most beautiful inventions, if you like, creations. We talk about them as though they were sinful. So you, you need to have a very open heart. Like Pope Francis said, a big heart open to God. I mean, by God we mean the mystery of what we don't know about. We don't know anything about God, really. Jesus revealed a lot, and nature reveals a lot. But God isn't the kind of a short word for somebody out there. There's nobody out there. God isn't out there. You know, God is the very inner power that surges through our bodies and that wakes us up to what's beautiful, that enables us to love and to love deeply. And that's why Jesus died, to show us that love doesn't stop when the going gets tough. You love until you die. And that's what he did to show the, the, the intensity of God's love. Um, so if you were just going back, say, to, 
term, to, to me in the carriage this morning, with that as a family or the, what I was saying about planet, Blue Planet 2, um, a, a woman writer says, where is God in this picture? God is all over the place in this picture, she says. God is up there, God is down here, God is inside my skin, God is outside my skin, God is the web, God is the energy, God is the space, God is the light, revealed in that vast net of relationship that animates everything there is. At this point in my thinking, she said, it is not enough for me to proclaim that God is responsible for all this intimacy and unity. Instead, I want to proclaim that God is the unity, the very energy, the very intelligence, the very elegance and passion that makes it all happen. Do you see the difference? Like for so long, I would be thinking, oh God, if that, is, if that love is so beautiful, how great is God's love? Or look at the countryside. Isn't that beautiful? How great God must be. And that's fair enough. But really what happens is that God has become incarnate. God is the love between people. God is the love between mother and child. God is the love in the crocuses when they come out. God is the love in planet Earth too. God is the love in that carriage this morning. God is. You see the difference between, between comparing the human with the divine. No, God is, and, and I could make it even a bit more challenging. Um, and our visible created, she goes on, our visible created universe is not simply an object created by a holy other God so as to show God's love. Um, the universe and people and their love is that God herself. So we're not just saying... Uh, um, we're not having to work hard at saying, you know, oh, these people, how do they remind me of God? They are God's face before you. The depth we're talking about, that whole theology and spirituality we're talking about, is the ability to believe and see we're in a God-infested, in a God-intoxicated, in a God-created. And this isn't just any one person there. This is the whole mystical belief. It's long before Jesus it was there. In Jesus it was confirmed. Now we know it. That's the truth for Christians, for Catholic Christians. So there are pages of this now coming out in lovely books by um, Elizabeth Johnson, her sister by Ilia Delio, another sister, um, and by many, many in the past, and like I mentioned, the mystics and so on. And like just reading them, to see the universe through the eyes of love helps us to, to make sense of evolution, not as a process of cold and blind chance, and randomness, but one of passion, yearning, novelty, union, intimacy, gift, suffering, death, and new life. Love is the very heart of the cosmos, of the universe, and of this earth. It's the fire at the centre of this earth. It's the fire in the heart of all of us. And goes on and on and on. I remember saying to one man, head of the Christian Brothers, and saying, you know, after I felt I had done fairly good talk, I said, I thought we'd be dancing around uh, after hearing all that news. I was asking for trouble, like I was saying as though he hadn't heard it before, or that I was new or something. He says, he says uh, I, I am, he says. I'm dancing inside. My heart is dancing. So, um, so I just had to think which, which way to go. There's um, uh, one time again, I mean, like, I... I, f I find now, and it's a bit difficult, that I can only talk out of things that happen. 
Like I've spent a long time preparing for this day, I can assure you. Really difficult and difficult and you know, I always sometimes say I'll never do this kind of a day again. Never. <laughs> you know. Like it's, it's, it's not worth it to me. And um, and then of course it happens and and so on. But I, I do find, like this morning, it has to be based on something that happens. All those examples on poetry and so on. So otherwise you can be misled. But but um, anyway, so when I was in the, in the last parish, but one, um, I was at um, a, a cremation. A lot of people just have the cremation and nothing else. <clears throat> they don't go to church at all, but they go to the crematorium. And anyway, so it was an unusual kind of a Catholic um, service. And I, was, I went and, um, to do whatever needed to be done. And at the ceremony, um, it was a grandmother <coughs> was being cremated. And uh, her grandson was there. And he I was uh, handcuffed. And two wardens were with him. He was let out of the jail for the day. <coughs> he had uh, done something wrong. Seriously wrong. And when the coffin was moving off the podium in between the curtains, he rushed up and threw himself on top of the coffin and banging the coffin with the handcuffs and uh, quite distraught. They pulled him off the coffin and, uh, and he kind of stumbled back on top of his mother, a small woman, sitting near the coffin um, of her mother. And um, I was quite taken aback, all this happening a few feet from me. So I looked, I looked at, at the scene when things calmed down, and there he was, a big hulking guy, spread across the lap of his mother, a small woman. And, and of, of course, you know, I, then I was looking at them, and I saw their eyes meeting. She looked down at him, and he kind of looked up at her. And afterwards, I was thinking, like, what was happening in that moment? Like, we were all looking at him as a, a criminal, you know, judging him, labelling him like mad. What was she seeing, I was thinking, when she looked at him? And the odds are, I suppose, <clears throat> that she would be seeing him um, at his best when he was a, maybe, you know, when he was a, a baby, you know, when he came into their house <clears throat> first as their son. And it was in a strange little, little place that they were born, uh, not much excitement around the place in, in um, North Yorkshire. And anyway, so there he was, he would come in and the joy they would have in this little baby and watching him and, and the light he brought into the house and um, the way he grew up and learned to talk and uh, be potty trained and <clears throat> um, take care of himself and then off he goes to school and um, the excitement of that and bringing home the notes and the mother and father maybe sticking them on the fridge and then... <clears throat> growing up in First Communion, and then secondary school, and exams, and football, and girls, and then a bit older, and bad company. 
and he goes to jail and the grief that brought. And so I was thinking and I was talking about it to another person who was with me at that cremation that we were seeing and blaming and judging and the mother was seeing through different eyes. We were looking at the, at the happening superficially, utterly superficially and be quite happy to label and call names. But she was looking at him in depth. She saw this human being who brought so much joy, I'm just imagining, and uh, delight. And she was his mother. And he was her son. It always intrigues me, like something I will never know, or no man will ever know, the kind of bond that I sometimes sense you know, between a mother and her child. It's just, anyway. So, not too long after that, and there's a book called Blessings and, um, by John O'Donoghue, the Irish writer and poet, wonderful man, died too soon, I suppose you could say, and uh, came across um, a poem called For the Parents of One Who Has Committed a Crime. And I'd noticed the sensitivity of how, the way he put it. He didn't say criminal, you know. And we do that so often, so often. Um, and what a person who has committed a crime. And just read a small bit of it. <clears throat> no, one else has, no one else can see beauty in his darkened life now. His image has closed like a shadow. When people look at him, he has become the mirror of the damage he has done. But he is yours, and you have different eyes that hold his yesterdays in pictures no one else remembers, waiting for him to be born, not knowing who he would be. The moments of his childhood, first steps, first words, smiles and cries, and all the big thresholds of his journey since. He is used in a way no words could ever tell. And you can see through the stranger this deed has made him and still find the countenance of your son. See, when I read that, I thought, that's it. That's what this whole depth and sacrament and imagination and a revelation of incarnation and all of that is. To be able to see things clearly to be able to see things uh, without the labelling, to see, to see things like the mother saw her son, to see things like God sees us. For us to have that vision, like second nature, to look at everything as God looks. It probably takes a lot of time of putting stuff together in our minds. With, like, I mean, <clears throat> sometimes people ask, why is it that we have to be shocked or, or ill or have an accident or some tragedy in the family um, 
or some bad news before we begin to look deeper. Why can't we do it on a fine day? Why can't we? We'll say, thank God, thank you, God, uh, for things. But why does it take, um, as it does, I don't know why they ask that question. I mean, it was probably the same for Jesus, <clears throat> who was tempted and who was extremely human. And we reject, I think, a lot of the humanity of Jesus. He was tempted, he was angry, um, and he was disobedient. If you remember those moments in the Gospel, he became an atheist on the cross. Like Jesus would have had to go through all those darknesses of humanity before we can say we are all saved. In our sin, in our depravity, in our shame, in our guilt, we're all, we're all saved. There's no exception to that. I don't know why the church talks about reserved sins and, you know, <clears throat> these are special sins that... Uh, Jesus never spoke about reserved sins. So, like, in a sense, almost anything you think about will, will open up avenues. I mentioned, um, I mentioned about me and the, and the family in the train this morning. Let me just, a quick story that some of you who have heard me before may have heard this about Thomas Merton, who would be one of the biggies in, in, in Christian, in inter, inter-religious world, um, as a mystic, as a prophet, <laughs> as a poet, he would be the one that, along with John Main and those, would have given a huge worldwide appreciation of contemplation. He would have kind of restarted it all again. But anyway, he lived in a, in a monastery called Gethsemane in Kentucky. Brilliant man, died again a bit early. And he noticed even some of his early writings would indicate a bit of that dualism I spoke about. And, and the nearest little city in the States they call, what we would call towns, they would call cities, Louisville was the city. And one day he was sitting there and looking at the people that he was judging on the streets of Louisville because he was convinced that these mighty monks on top of the mountain, their, their bodies and minds and lives given completely to God, praying all night and all day, in between the praying, working in the fields, singing the Psalms, that they surely had the edge on these people he was looking at up and down the streets, churchless and religionless, uh, and not seeming to be in any way spiritual. And, and then, like a blessing, like a moment of revelation, which we all have, just think of yours. I have a little um, section in a, in a website I have for people to send in those little moments. Most of them wouldn't be involved with anything explicitly holy, but in what we might call natural or secular, but now we know these are holy. Two. Um, and, 
And suddenly he, he began, he saw them walking up and down, laughing and holding hands and families and lovers and, you know, dressed nicely and he could hear them laughing in, in and out of shops and so on. And then it struck him, what in God's name was he doing, he asked himself, in thinking that these guys up on the hill were closer to God in some way than these people. Very like me this morning, he, a monk, thinking of the other monks as signs of holiness, and they were, no doubt about it. But the damage he was doing was thinking they were more holy than these people who were families, as God wanted people to be, apart from those with certain charisms for celibacy and so on, or for monasteries and so on. And he saw, and he saw the beauty of that, and God's beauty incarnate in them. He said, what am I doing, he said, thinking that they are holier than these? Aren't these the ones who are shining with love and joy and the whole family? And when he went home, he wrote this. Isn't it a glorious destiny to be a member of the human race? You see, he's changed his tune fairly quickly. Um, I went to see the place this happened. I put my backside on the seat. He had his backside on uh, some time ago, just to be able to say I sat in the seat that Thomas Merton sat on. <laughs> um, it didn't make any diff big difference to me, but however, um, <laughs> it might have rubbed off a small bit. So, Isn't it a glorious destiny to be a member of the human race? Though it is a race dedicated to many absurdities. Look at the wars, look at the awful things we do to each other. One which makes terrible mistakes. Yet with all of that, God himself was gloried, was delighted in, um, in becoming a member of this human race. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realise what we all are. And if only everybody could realise this. But it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. And then when I'm talking to priests, and they do struggle a bit with me sometimes, I kind of say, look, we've only one thing to do. It's not to be frightening people anymore. We have done that and we hope we'll be forgiven. With all this old talk about going to confession and God watching us and sin and limbo and purgatory and hell, I said, God is a most loving mother and a loving lover and there was never anything um, to change that except what we do, you know, with lists of sins and serious sins and rubrics for the liturgy and, you know, somehow linking God deeply with worship with the way people say Mass. Like God is a thing of the heart. God is when you love, and God is when your heart is broken, and God is when you can manage to forgive, and God is when you can let your creativity emerge free. <coughs> it isn't when you keep the laws and the rules. We made an awful mistake. We, and we think it's about beliefs and ticking boxes. You know, when some guy looks as though he might be um, a, a bishop, and the Vatican wants to make sure that he is absolutely kosher, they'll ask his friends, what, does he, what kind of thing does he believe in? Where does he stand on women priests? 
Where does he stand on gay marriage? Where does he stand on uh, divorced people who haven't been annulled receiving communion? That's how they judge. Not as the guy a loving heart. Not as the guy open person that people follow and admire. No, just, just, as an awful, I mean, Jesus, Jesus didn't talk about those things. He just said, do you love me? Do you love me? Can you forgive? A whole different set of criteria for being a full human being. Um, so, so I say to them, like with only one thing, and that is to tell people they're loved to pieces by God, and that that loving them can heal anything, like Jesus healed people, to get them to believe in the power and the divinity of their hearts, and to leave on a Sunday morning, no matter how broken or despairing they may be, and people do go through hell, and Monday is coming, and another week to face with not enough money and not enough health to keep the job going or uh, not getting on with a, with a partner or whatever. People need only gentleness and kindness and healing to hear somebody saying, look, you can do it. You can do it. I believe in you. I know you can do it. You've done it before. I trust you. And he finishes up. It was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach. The core of their reality. The person that each one is in God's eyes. Remember we were saying that's the key. To try to look at people with the eyes of God. And to put in that compassion and that mercy and that love and that support into our eyes and our touch and the way we listen to them. It's presence, it's physical. Because we would think about physicality and so on as, as the result of the fall or something. Uh, you know, we're uncomfortable with bodies, our own and others and so on. But it's our senses, our senses are utterly divine. How else can God touch anybody if we don't? Remember what Jesus said to Saint Teresa, you know, without your eyes, I can't look at people with love. Without your tongue, I can't speak words of love to people. Without your hands, I can't touch people and hug them into believing in themselves. So that God can't do it if we don't. It's a shocking thing, but it's called the incarnate God. As Christians, we believe that. Probably the only religion who believes it to that extent. And the Roman Catholic um, um, denomination above all at the root are the best at insisting and believing and not deviating from that. God became human utterly and totally and is everywhere. I don't know what number of questions in the catechism. God is everywhere. That's all I'm doing today in a way. Um, anyway, um, in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as the reality they really are. That's what it is about too, how to see ourselves as God sees us, utterly loved. But all these barriers come in of poor religious education, um, fear of God, fear of hell, and then, we get, and then people leave 
There's also another talking about what blocks us from, from going with this lovely wave of love and this whole picture I'm, I'm, I'm opening up today, but I'm not, trying to, I'm not denying the death or the, or, the, or the effort. But we all carry a darkness as well. We don't know why. It's not Adam and Eve that was an easy cop-out. Something in us is quite sinister. It's maybe to do with evolution, maybe to do with time and space, maybe to do with free will, but there's something in us that, that's, that struggles with the light, that struggles with love, that struggles with beauty. There's something in us, and you know it. You know it. Every time we judge, every time we rant and rave about something, every time we live on the surface of something, that's where all that kind of labelling lives as well. Just keep that in mind. It's a kind of, an, we call it original sin, not done by Adam and Eve, but it's something in us. Like very often the people we love and marry, you know, maybe in a few years, the very same reasons, and we want to, to end it. But there's something really capricious and weird about us. Um, so anyway, um, if only they could see themselves as they really are, light and dark, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there'd be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more prejudice, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would all fall down and begin to worship each other. <laughs> Don't start doing it now, please, until, you know. Um, and then, and then, then he spoke a lot about the true self and the false self, and I read this to you this morning, but all of these things need to be read every day, several times a day, to make them second nature or first nature to us. Talking about that inner place, that true self, where the Blessed Trinity lives, where God is sending out the energy all the time, and he calls it the place we were kissed and cherished by our Mother God when we were first created. That beautiful place that can become twisted and distorted, like I've been saying, but never destroyed, never destroyed. That's why I don't think we should ever, you know, judge even the most awful men and women that we always say they're the worst in the world ever. People who kill and torture, I think about them every day. People who are tortured all day long and the men who do it. So like Jesus would say, and he himself was outraged by the awful evil in the world, he would say, by all means, hate the evil, but leave the people to me. So otherwise you're saying <coughs> God's creation and Jesus' redemption didn't work. <coughs> otherwise you're saying uh, resurrection didn't work for them. And we don't know. So we're tempted to really judge uh, those people who do awfully evil things, but it's better not to. Because somebody is, we're judging ourselves when we do that. Um, look, all of this is time up, it's uh, lunchtime. It's all very... Anyway, we, we just say a little prayer again that somehow the Holy Spirit will be at work in us <coughs> to whatever extent we're open, to open us more, um, to... To, to discern what I'm saying, to discern what's true and good from what might be inaccurate. But just to place our whole, but to, but to want and to desire with all our hearts this transformation which the Holy Spirit brings us, 
that it may continue and happen, that we may shine like the sun and that others may catch the light off us as we catch the life off them. <laughs>